literally would download the Ethereum onto a laptop and play with it and figure out how we connect up those with other systems. We had developers involved, but we did it all ourselves. This was really roll your sleeves up, and we had a lot of really passionate people about it, which is basically how this always gets off the ground. Welcome to a Bit Cryptic Podcast, where we interview top crypto experts to take you down the rabbit hole into the world of cryptocurrency. Now, it's time to get a bit cryptic. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our show. My name is Dong Du. I'm the tech editor and host of today's program. Today's guest is Jim Kuna, who is the Senior Vice President of the Treasury and Financial Services Group at the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. The Federal Reserve Bank of Boston is one of 12 regional banks of the Federal Reserve System. Now, at the Boston Fed, Jim's group has responsibilities over a number of different areas, cash processing, payments, mobile strategies, and wholesale payment operations. Now, Jim has had a long distinguished career with the Federal Reserve System and has intimate working knowledge of the payments infrastructure, otherwise known as the financial plumbing. For the last few years, Jim has been very active in policy circles, media, and tech forums to share his learnings from the Boston Fed's efforts to explore and develop blockchain technology. And he's gonna share some of those views today in terms of how they rate the technology its potential benefits and the potential risks that, that they see in the number of different financial areas where this technology could be used. And lastly, Jim leads the bank's applied research program and he closely tracks the evolution of digital currencies. As the courtesy to our guests, uh, we just like to add a disclaimer that Jim's views are his, his personal views and don't necessarily reflect the views of the Federal Reserve System. So Jim, welcome to the program. Great to have you. Thanks, Dang, and thanks for doing my, my caveat for me. I appreciate being here. And, you know, one of the things we try to do is share what we're doing broadly with other financial institutions and the public just to help get what our learnings are out there. So I appreciate the time talking with you today. So, Jim, you've been with the Fed since 1984, I believe, right? Correct. Yep. So, Five years. Younger. That's a long stretch career. Uh, now, take us back to that historic moment when you decided to dedicate your career with this U.S. Federal Reserve. I believe Paul Volcker was chairman of the Fed back then, right? Correct, yeah. He yeah. Year so, or so. so why, why did you choose this career in public service? Well, really, I'd come here out of a, the banking environment. I wanted to get back to Boston because I was Boston, Boston born and bred, but also because I wanted to learn from an institution that cared a lot about safety, soundness, and security. So like many people, I had about a three or four year plan where I was going to come in, learn about the technology, learn about how to do security right, and then move on to something else. What happened is every three or four years, my job changed and I was able to eventually move into the deep technology space. And then, as I said, with a career change every three or four years inside the Fed, it suddenly added up to a career of 35 years. I've been blessed to be able to touch the technology side, the business side, in the last 10 or so years to really experiment with new technology and have a lot of control over what I do. So that's really kept me happy and kept me here. It's been a wonderful place. You know, probably not the Federal Reserve that most people think, but we're really actually very innovative. We think about things deeply and actually it's been a, an amazing 35 years. Perhaps you could help us understand what are the core functions of the Federal Reserve? Often people only see that interest rate setting side as part of the monetary policy. I think this is a useful background to see 
why over the years you're heavily invested in financial technology and understanding, you know, the payments infrastructure and more recently digital innovation. Yeah. So let me explain what the Fed does, what our role is at a high level. I also tie it to, you know, why we care about blockchain, because that's a question I get a lot is, so why is blockchain something you care about? So the Federal Reserve has three main missions, and one is, as you mentioned, monetary policy, studying the unemployment and interest rates and understanding how the economy is doing and whether we need to act to affect rates. So that's what people mainly think of. But we also do supervision of financial institutions, and we're a lender of lost resorts. So that means for many large institutions, we're going to examine them to make sure they're safe and sound and aren't taking on undue risks. And we also, as a lender of last resort, if banks need money, they can come to the Fed to borrow. So that's the second area. The third, which most people don't know that the Fed's involved with, is payments. So we actually operate payment systems. Like many central banks, we operate what we call wholesale payments, where we move you know, large value money between two banks, also called wire transfer. And we have securities, so we have securities on deposit here for banks that they can then buy and sell. But what we do that no central banks do is retail payments. So if you write a check and that check has to move between banks, most of those go through the Fed. Or if you get your payroll direct deposited, most of that comes through the Federal Reserve. Probably half of them come through the Federal Reserve if it's moving from bank A to bank B. So so that's what people don't really understand. And that's been my world for my whole career is payments and technology. So how that translates into us caring about blockchain is if you're examining a large financial institution, generally we don't care about what technology they use. That's not the level of analysis we're doing. But if they're making a major shift into something, say, called blockchain, and they're moving assets onto a new ledger, just say all the securities that they own, we want to make sure that they understand the risks. So that's really what we care about. Does the bank understand the risk they're taking by going to some new technology and understanding is the technology sound, you know, might it create operational risk for them. So that's one reason we care about it. And the second reason is, as I mentioned, we run payment systems. So we would want to think about, should we use blockchain? Is that a technology that we should use if other participants are starting to use it? We compete in these payment industries. So what are our competitors doing? If they're moving to blockchain as a way of being more efficient or a better mousetrap, might we want to think about moving that way as well? And then lastly, we just care about how well the payment systems function. So if payment systems are moving to this technology, even if we're not, is there a chance that they may fail because the technology maybe is not right or they haven't thought through all the implications? So that's really why the Federal Reserve cares about this because we've got you know, sort of many stakes in the game here as far as how we care about the functioning economy. So this payment infrastructure has been in place for decades. The Fed sits in the middle to facilitate these massive transaction value um, and it's humming and it operates at the back end. So folks at first glance may not uh, notice that that is there. Yeah, so correct. So people don't generally understand how they work. They just trust that when I pull out a credit card, now we're not in a credit card business, but when I pull out a credit card, they don't know what happens, but they know it works. Or if they get direct deposit of their pay or they write a check, they don't understand the plumbing behind the scenes, but there's a lot there that has to work well. Right. So with respect to new technology and, and looking at its potential benefits, at an industry symposium, you spoke about how distributed ledger technology, or colloquially people know as blockchain, how it could fundamentally change 
different areas of financial services and payments is one of them, but you also mentioned uh, securities, derivatives, trade finance, among others. Uh, could you elaborate on that view? Um, and perhaps, you know, that, that sort of uh, could be a, you know, a discussion, a segue for, for us to, to, to get into your, your recent uh, efforts to take really a deep dive into this technology. Sure. So if you think about what uh, blockchain or distributed ledger technologies are, are good at, what, what the characteristics are, you know, it's a shared ledger. So generally, it's something where you want to define and store something of value. There are many participants that may want to move that thing of value amongst themselves. You need trust in the technology. It needs to be bulletproof as far as, as, far as no changes to the underlying assets. You need to know when you move it, it's final and can't be removed from the system. So that's really what blockchain distributed ledgers are good at. So when you think about securities or derivatives or other things of value, you know that's sort of the use case that they are good at processing. A lot of what I build my opinions on is what's happening in the industry, not necessarily my own opinion. So if you look at what the large financial institutions and the large players are doing is many of them are looking at securities. Can we put securities on distributed ledger? Or can we move cross-border payments? What you have to do all the time, though, is, is look at what's the problem I'm trying to solve and is distributed ledger the right solution? So I think right now we're looking a lot at the potential use cases and we're trying to understand are these the ones that blockchain is good at now or may be good at the near future? So those, those are some of the areas. A few others that are getting really a lot of attention sort of outside of my world is supply chain. You know, can the supply chain processing, Walmart is looking at tracking or actually is tracking pork in China. Diamonds are being tracked on the technology. So you have something you want to track, something you want to record that gets moved between parties and that's where the blockchain comes in. So now, those are some of the areas that we've been focusing on is trying to understand how the market's moving. So you're a problem solver and, and you mentioned finding the right business case, right? Um, and, and one of the these you mentioned is cross-border payments. So uh, what do you think some of the potential tech solutions out there for this area, for example, uh, Ripple, you know, Stellar, Horda, can they play a valuable here, role here? This is not really to endorse any particular technology, but yeah. uh, but can you sort of speak to, to the, the problem there and, you know, what is that the industry trying to solve? Sure. So I want to break it into two categories. One is sort of in a retail side. So just think of sending remittances back home or to your cousin in the Philippines or someone in, in uh, Mexico. So in that world, it's well known that it, it's a very expensive process to move three or four hundred dollars across border to a person. In some countries, it's, re it's really hard to get the money there. So it's opaque as far as how long it takes. It's expensive. Sometimes the money is, is lost along the way. and takes time to recover. So, you know, there's a problem to solve in the remittance area. So if you think about cross-border, there are a number of technologies, and as you say, I don't pick winners, but if you look at Stellar or uh, Ripple's uh, network, out of Philippines is a company called Abra, that they have some nice models on how do you use distributed ledger in maybe a cryptocurrency, because some of them are actually using Bitcoin as an exchange currency. How do you create a better model there so it can be less expensive, it can be tracked better, and you just have more surety of when your money is going to be there. So I do think cross-border is one area that has some potential. The other end of the spectrum is wholesale, you know, big money. So big money moving across border. 
The challenge there is you're not just sending $300 across country lines for the purpose of just moving money. That money is always being moved for some business reason, whether you're buying a company or settling a trade obligation, buying oil, whatever it is, it's a much more complex process. So just moving the money across the border is not the only problem. It's all those other business implications you have to think about. So on the wholesale side, it's just a much, much more challenging question because there are legal requirements. Just think, moving $400, that's all there is to the transaction. If you're moving $500 million, and if the money and when the money is received, you want to sign the contract or move the ownership of the oil of the security, that has to be figured in as to how that system works to move the money. So the wholesale is just a whole different question. When I talk about the great value, I think is more in the remittance area, which is a much simpler case. So that would be- And I think the technologies out there have, some, have definitely a promise but we're still early in the, in the phases of the development. So on the wholesale side, that would be a private industry solution, right? So, so why would the Fed care about that? Well, it could be. I mean, there are some solutions out there looking within the private sector. So a number of banks uh, have started something called Utility Settlement Coin, USC. So that's a network where banks would move money from bank to bank, and their ultimate goal would be also to go cross-border. So that's one potential solution. Uh, Ripple has a model where they, where they are the intermediaries. So once again, it's a private sector model. A number of central banks are doing experiments, and that's what our experiment was, which I know we'll get to. But if you look at Project Ubin out of Singapore, Project Jasper, you know, those are solutions where they're doing proof of concepts with first in-country, then cross-border payments. And cross-border payments also tied to a securities purchase. Now, to be very clear, they all state, as we do, that we're not trying to develop something to go into production or definitely in no time soon. We're really experimenting with a use case that makes sense so we can learn as much as we can possibly learn. USC wants to get to production. Ripple wants to get to production. But the central banks that are experimenting on this really are trying to learn and understand what the technology is capable of without without any commitment. So that's the wholesale side as far as what I see going on there. Recently, you, Boston Fed released a, a white paper articulating you know, a multi-year effort. You know, It's learning from this effort to really understand the potential benefits of this technology. Could you perhaps kind of break down some of the top highlights from that paper? What, what should people take away from this report? Yeah, so first, the reason why we did it. So in 2015, we decided that we really wanted to get our hands dirty and, and learn this new technology that was coming out called blockchain. So we decided that we would do an experiment where we'd take the books of the Fed, put them onto a blockchain, and then mimic banks moving their own money. So a simple use case, but not a simple area to work within. We started with Ethereum, mainly because in 2016, that was the only other platform besides the Bitcoin blockchain, and we were not going to use that. Following year, we used Hyperledger Fabric. Now, we moved because we wanted to experiment with different technologies, and we also understood that Hyperledger Fabric was uh, developed specifically for financial services. So it was more of a closed network, which is what we believe would probably be the first stepping stone for 
financial institutions was something that was closed versus something totally open like Ethereum or Bitcoin. A lot of the learnings we had were that this is really hard. We had no consultants. We did it ourselves. So early on, the documentation was lacking. Some of the functionality was not very good. The functions you may expect to find in a financial services package just weren't there. But you have to remember, this is like the first release of Ethereum and the first release of Hyperledger Fabric. In the year plus that we worked with each of these, they made a lot of strides to improve the technology, improve the support available to those installing the package, uh, come up with new features, get rid of old features. So while it was messy, we learned exactly what we thought we would was that it's messy. This is hard. But things grew a lot in the first couple of years. So we make sure in our paper that we qualify what we learned was two years old in a platform that's only three years old. So the context matters. You know, so we found those, those challenges there. We also thought about how we might apply this in the long run, and we had some preconceived notions about how the technology might work, and we found out those would not pan out as far as how we may connect up our systems. So that was a good learning. We also learned at that time that we weren't alone. We first started doing this. We thought we were the only central bank in the world doing it and found out there were four others, Bank of England, Canada, and Singapore, that did the exact same experiment at the exact same time. So we thought we were on the right track with how we're thinking about this. So the learnings were good. The other thing we learned is that we need to share this information. We really need to share with other central banks, with anybody else that wants to learn from what we did. That's why we wrote our paper as a journey, so you could understand the steps we made, the reasons we did it, and what we learned. Like I said, the big caveat is that things evolved as we were going forward, so some of it is historic, but it paints the right journey. So I'd say those are the biggest learnings we got from it. Also that we talked about, there's a lot of stuff in the business world that we just ignored. We knew we weren't going to production, so we were not really worrying about certain legal aspects and other things that we would definitely need to worry about. So while we understood it, we learned it much more through our processes that the business issues, you know, the legal issues, the policies, how you actually make this thing work in real life is much more complicated than the technology. So people think it's a technology problem. The technology is nowhere near as hard as thinking about policy how you have to rebuild a business, how you rebuild trust in a process where you're moving you know, tens and hundreds of millions of dollars. So that was just reinforced with the, the process we went through. So to, to clarify, folks at the Boston Fed, the developers built this internally. It's a, you, you did not partner with a fintech third party or it wasn't working with community Ethereum developers. Right. This was pure skunks works. This was the real startup mode that I love to build here in the, in the Boston Fed. We've done a number of different That's environments right. like that. You know, we had some, we were all volunteers. We had some passionate people that worked on weekends and downloaded the software. You know, this is, we also want to make sure that what we use was open source. So we literally, literally would download load the Ethereum onto a laptop and play with it and figure out how we connect up those with other systems. We had developers involved, but we did it all ourselves. This is really roll your sleeves up and we had a lot of really passionate people about it, which is basically how this always gets off the, off the ground. So we, and we purposely didn't want to go outside one because, you know, we didn't want to expend money. We wanted to learn as much as we possibly could by by the trials and tribulations. Well, um, much credit to the team there. So the technical team at the Boston Fed can easily match any technical team, uh, industry or <laughs> wherever. <laughs> yeah, I will say our experiments were similar to the other central banks, but a little more rudimentary. You know, some of them had teams of 20, 30 people. So I, I encourage people as well, if they're interested in this whole concept of the interbank settlement, 
But if, if you go to Canada for the Project Jasper or Project Ubin out of Singapore or Project Stellar, which is out of the ECB and Bank of Japan, all this, their information is all publicly available and they did some really, really robust things. So I, I'd encourage people to look at those papers as well, because they had the same rationale. They wanted to share broadly across the industry, so we all learned. But one of the things that you were testing is the, the role of the Fed serving as a, a regulatory supervisory node in this network. So this is sort of speaking to the overall background. You know, what is the core function of the Fed? Is to One of it is to uh, ensure safety and soundness as, as a regulator, as a supervisor. And so uh, building a, a distributed ledger-based uh, network, the Fed would serve as a as a regulatory supervisory node. What does that mean? Can, I, can you can I explain and break that down to us? Yeah, so when I say a supervisory or an audit node, I, I, I meet that both specific to the Fed, but also more generally. So if you think, if you have a network where you're moving things of value, I can think of a number of different roles outside of the institutions moving the value where you might have a regulator that says, I want to be able to understand how the money is flowing across that network. Uh, I want to understand how a particular bank's position is changing throughout the day. So if you have a node on the network that can see all the traffic, that's potentially invaluable to a regulator. Also, the institution, just say it's a network run by a nonprofit. You think of something like the ACH network run by NACHA. You know, they have a role where they are enforcing rules on participants. You know, you can think of them as wanting a node on a network where they can see the traffic to see if all the rules are being followed or potentially, there's no entity now looking at this, you can think of even having a node in a network that's helping to look for fraud and trying to find other areas of potential risk to the network. So even though I say supervisor, it could be many different roles that may want to monitor a network. You've got, in the securities world, you've got some self-regulating entities that are out there that regulate themselves. So they may want a node on there to make sure that all the participants in that self-regulated network are following the rules and also to make sure there's no technical problems. So that's where I see this as a very more, a more general concept of a supervisory node. And right now, there's really not much work being done out there. So we're trying to think of experiments we can do this year to think both architecturally how that works. What does that node do? How does it fit into the network? Are there risks? And what happens if you have five regulators? Do you have five nodes or one node? So there's a lot of questions. Some of them are technical and some of them are actually policy as well. What's the role of that node? Is it even legal that node can be on there? So there's just a lot of great questions that really have not been explored much, which is where we hope to go this year. But, but currently, a regular supervisor would be privy to that information, right? So I'm trying to understand what would be the benefits. Of, of being a supervisory node in this new tech architecture. Yeah, so I heard, I heard a quote from the uh, chair of the CFTC, I believe, who was at a conference a couple of years ago. And as he portrayed it, we did not have a holistic view of the entire market during the financial crisis. You know, may, we may have, have had a, a lot of our view is post the transactions. You know, we don't have real-time recording of transactions as they're flowing in and out of financial institutions. We definitely don't have a view of an entire market at one on time and whether that market is functioning properly or whether there are potential liquidity issues. So, you know, we didn't have not good visibility into what was happening at those times because it's after the fact. So if you think of the, if during the crisis, all those transactions were on a ledger which had supervisory view into it, we may have had a better view of what was happening with some of those financial institutions that were in trouble. Like I said, it's not, a, it's not simple 
to do, but I think it's a potential area that we should be thinking about both technically and also the policy people, just so we have a better view of safety soundness of individual organizations, but also markets. You know, is the tri-party repo market in trouble because of, you know, certain factors that we could maybe see better if we were there or derivatives or some other product? Interest rate swap or any number of financial agreements that the industry executes. Um, yep. So the when we talk about blockchain, the oldest running application is Bitcoin. It's been running about 10 years and it's very global. And uh, with the rise of Ethereum, it creates a global uh, distributed computer that allows uh, people to run decentralized applications, right? And and then came an explosion of digital currencies. Now it's a global phenomenon. All sorts of players have emerged, including uh, nation states, uh, governments. Often at tech conferences, uh, you hear speakers project how uh, within a few years, say, there will be a a host of countries that will have its own digital currency. What do they mean by that? Uh, In the context of the U.S., does that mean that there's going to be a a Fed coin or a Federal Reserve digital currency? I just want to clarify, you know, my understanding on on what that could mean. Yeah, so generally they're talking about the government issue of a digital currency. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's on blockchain, but something that's that's totally digital. Within the, uh, across the world, the ones that are most outspoken about that, you know, China is saying that they are working on something aggressively, which will be, you know, a digital currency, which will supplement, I'm sure, a paper currency. A few Caribbean nations are talking about it. We've got Petro, which, depending on how you qualify it, is one of many different things out of Venezuela. I would characterize the U.S. and most developed nations as just sort of looking at it. I would not say that the currency of the U.S. is the low-hanging fruit. That's the first thing we're going to put out there digitally on a blockchain. But we want to understand what's happening across the world and just at least study it. I don't see this happening anytime in the near future in the U.S. or most developing countries. So one country that's looking seriously at it is Sweden because the corona, the paper corona, is barely in circulation there. So they've been looking at whether they need a digital version of it just so they have a fiat country, uh, currency, you know, government-issued currency that they can control that's used by the public. Even they are years away from having a decision. If they have a decision to issue something, then they're years away from actually issuing it. So nothing's going to happen soon within this world. There's just a lot of conversations and a lot of people looking at platforms. But I think we're, you know, we're at least five, eight years away from anybody really doing something where they're going to issue a digital currency in any scale. So you had a long career at the Fed. Would you consider this to be one of your more memorable projects or a project where you're really discovering an entire new landscape, new territory, uh, and there are some important takeaways? Yeah, I'd say this is more on the leading edge of most anything I've done. And for a Fed guy, you know, I've been on the leading edge of a fair amount of innovation. So one thing we started piloting was a chip-based prepaid card that the military uses. We started piloting that in 1999 in Bosnia. So right now, that's grown. So I, I said before, I do startups. So that's grown from two people working on something in Bosnia. To We're in 15 countries. We service every branch of the military. 
We've got hundreds of thousands of cards. We have the only chip card, which stores value, that also has a debit strip on it. So I think we're the only one in the U.S. So that was a pretty big, in my career, that was something that I'm proud of, and I'm proud the Fed can be that innovative. And there are a number of things, but this, this really is something I think is the most leading edge. And part of the reason why I wanted to be out there in the leading edge is, obviously, the Fed's conservative, and we have to be. You know, what we do is very important, or I'm from Boston, I should say, it's wicked important, and we don't do things lightly. We don't change lightly because there's so much at stake. But when the internet came around and the World Wide Web started to evolve, I think the Fed was behind the curve as far as understanding what that might mean to, to commerce, to banking, to all that. So one of the reasons why I'm so vocal about this is I just don't want to miss a major shift in how we operate in the U.S. as we might have a little bit with the internet and the World Wide Web. So this is a lot of fun. There's a lot of hype out there, obviously. I think there's lots of potential. I really think there's tons of potential, but these things take a long time. Innovation never happens overnight. So I think the earlier we start, the more we get our hands dirty and understand the technology, it just better positions us to be able to react, whether we're reacting to others in the market or decide that this is something that we want to do ourselves. So that's my biggest takeaway is from the early, some of the early innovations I've been involved with is it takes a long time. It's really hard. It's a lot of fun, but also that's that's where a lot of the value is. If you can really be in the leading edge and help to set a, a course, you know, to me, that's, you know, it's, that's, that's a great career if you can do that a few times in your life. Innovation veteran, those are some good takeaways. Have fun, be on the leading edge, have patience. So Jim, you know, a lot of credit and props to, to your team. I will link in the show notes your white paper so that folks can take a look at it if they're interested and they can a deeper dive. And best of luck uh, with, with what you're doing as well to your team. So Today's guest is uh, Jim Kuna, uh, Senior Vice President of the Treasury and Financial Services Group at the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. Again, Jim, really appreciate sitting down with us today. Dang, I appreciate the conversation. I appreciate the invitation and the ability to do my job, which is get the word out there. If people read the paper and have questions, reach out to me. Feel free to reach out to the Boston Fed, and we'd love to have the conversation You know, if there are questions or ideas out there. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to a Bit Cryptic podcast. A Bit Cryptic podcast is hosted by Alain Leon, Dang Du, and myself, Jeff Peterson. Show notes are by our editor-in-chief, Dang Du. Website is by Sammy Toucan and his team at Pack Surge Media. Remember, nothing we say in this show is meant to be financial advice. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends and family. Thank you for listening, and remember, keep it cryptic.